Welcome to First in Maine, your avenue to living well. I'm Debs here with my amazing co-host, Lauren, to meet you in the busyness of your everyday life, to pass along some of the insights and wisdom we've gained over the years. Don't try to figure out life alone. We want to connect you to some of the incredible, well-rounded people in our world. They're life coaches, counselors, pastors, physicians, just amazing people who can help you along the way. Each episode, we'll be sharing personal stories, practical help, and timeless principles to help you live at your best. So lean in and let's tackle life together. Yep, you read right. We are going to talk about politics today. Here in the U.S., midterm elections are around the corner, and election time oftentimes can be a pretty unnerving time for a lot of us. Between all the ads, social media posts, not to mention the feelings that we kind of get because we are thinking about the impact the election could have on our nation or us individually, we thought it would be a good idea to bring some perspective. That is kingdom perspective to the topic of politics and voting. We are not going to shy away from topics just because they may be controversial ones. So before we jump in, we want you to know we're going to be referencing the Bible. (laughs) Of course, it's first in Maine, right guys? But we'll also be um, referencing two excellent resources. The first, a book called Kingdom Politics, written by Dr. Tony Evans, as well as a video series called The American Heritage Collection by David Barton, which you can find on YouTube. Now, if you're not familiar with Dr. Tony Evans, he is really one of our country's most respected leaders in evangelical circles. He's been the senior pastor of Oaks Cliff Bible Fellowship for over 40 years. He's the founder and president of the Urban Alternative, a Christian Bible teaching and resource ministry. He's also the first African-American to earn a doctorate of theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he's been named one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English-speaking world. And I have to say, I love his preaching. If you've never heard him, check him out. You'll love it. It's so balanced, so grounded in the Word of God. And you may not know this, but he's actually Priscilla Shiver's father, who's another one of my favorite women Bible teachers. Now, if you don't know David Barton, he's the founder and president of Wall Builders. They're a national pro-family organization that presents America's forgotten history and their heroes. He does that with a emphasis on moral, religious, and constitutional facts, you know, our heritage. And he's done exhaustive research that has actually rendered him an expert in historical and constitutional issues. And he even serves as a consultant to state and federal legislators. So to talk about all of this with us today is Bill, my better half, a Marine veteran, by the way, and someone who has helped me better understand how civic government is supposed to work. I'm not sure about better half, but thanks for inviting me back. And especially when, thank you, especially when we're talking about such an important and possibly controversial topic. So let's just jump in. Bill, when it comes to politics and voting, how do we go about cultivating a kingdom perspective? That is an important question. But before we get into that, you may not know this, but it's estimated that roughly half 
of born-again Christians don't vote. Y'all, I mean, I just read this the other day. It said that 90 million Christians who are eligible to vote, of those, only 40 million voted, like, in the last election. And there's... it. it estimates that there's probably another 15 million Christians out there who are not even registered to vote. But for those of you that do vote, I want to ask you, how do you vote? And why is it that you vote that way? Are you a staunch conservative, a hardcore liberal, or do you consider yourself an independent or maybe somewhere in between? It's something to think about. Before we talk about how we cultivate a kingdom perspective, I think it's important we first start by asking ourselves to consider what has influenced the way we think and feel about politics and voting. And since most of you listening are in America, what shaped your beliefs about our country? Dr. Tony Evans says it in this in his book, when it comes to politics and elections, far too many Christians are more influenced by their family, history, tradition, culture, racial expediency, and personal preference than actually what's in the Bible. And what it teaches. What we actually have is a lot of people, including politicians, with deeply ingrained opinions and beliefs that unfortunately are not rooted in a biblical worldview. Tony Evans says this, he says, every question facing us today has two answers, God's answer and everyone else's. And when those two differ, everyone else is wrong. Oh, I love that. You know, Romans 12.2 tells us, we are to be really careful not to copy the behavior of this world. In fact, it tells us we're to let God transform us by changing the way we think. You know, the Bible will transform our worldview because it teaches us things like absolute moral truth exists, that God is all-knowing, He is our Creator, um, that his ways are not our ways. In fact, they're so much better. And here's a big one. He wants to work through us to impact our neighbor and our culture. You know, so thinking about that, we want to ask you to listen today, open your heart, and honestly examine yourself. Remember, this is First and Main. We're committed to living a First and Main life, which is a kingdom first life. So let's just jump in and cultivate a kingdom perspective on this incredibly important subject today. Okay, so let's talk about politics from a biblical perspective. Bill, what are some things we need to understand? I think a good place to start is in Proverbs 29 and 2. It says this, when the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. So when you read the Bible, you'll actually find a good bit of emphasis on the political realm. You can look in the Old Testament in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and these are just four books in the Old Testament that deal specifically with the rule and reign of government leaders. But if you look throughout Scripture, you're going to find all kinds of things covered about politics laws, statutes, ordinances, kingdoms, empires, courts, judges, kings, queens, taxes, just a myriad of stuff about politics. In Scripture, we see God establishing governments and dismantling them. You can read about him placing people in strategic political roles and removing others from political roles. Yeah, and one of the other things that you find is God warning especially his people, to be careful of what they ask for. 
and that their choices have consequences. I can't help but think of the story in 1 Samuel in chapter 8. It's a passage of scripture that goes into a great detail um, about how excluding God and his principles from government is dangerous for citizens, as well as describing how the government should function and what laws it is to enact. You know, in this story, the Israelites saw their neighboring nations who were ruled by kings, and they wanted the same protection they felt the other nations were getting. When I read the story, I can't help but, you know, imagine like modern day, like what the comparable would be, but... Keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, definitely. But looking at other countries and seeing how they're governed, looking at other countries and wanting what they have, let's say, you know, free health care, for example. But anyway, don't let me get off track. Let me get back to the story. The bottom line is rather than trusting in God and his methods, they sought to do things like everybody else. And God warned them that once they started down that road, that they were in effect going to be looking to government as God rather than to God, and that the government would inevitably insert itself into every aspect and fiber of their being. And yeah, I think it'd be really helpful. Why don't we just like look some of that stuff up, Bill? And can you read some of the warnings the people were given? Sure. It says, he will take your sons and place them for himself. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields for vineyards and your olive groves. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and even your donkeys. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. I hope you caught all that. You know, and right after this, he tells them, he actually foreshadows what the people would then do as a result of this kind of government. He said, then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Wow. Life is about choices. <laughs> it is. You that's said that, a, that's didn't a throwback, you? isn't it? It is. Yeah, absolutely. We can, we can certainly learn a lot from this story. For one, whenever we try to build a civil government apart from God establishing the rules, that government will eventually take the things we value the most. We see it all the time. They come for more and more and more. They'll require illegitimate taxes that we're obligated to pay. They'll try to influence and control our children, our businesses, our possessions, and a whole lot more. You know, I think that's a pause and think about that, y'all, kind of moment. You know, one thing the Bible definitely makes clear is God blesses nations that prioritize their relationship with Him. And he removes his protection when they stray from his values. The truth is, any time God is removed from the life of an individual, the life of a family, I mean, the life of a church, or the life of a society, the more chaotic each of those become. Definitely. I think if you just watch the news today, you can see just how much the chaos and crime is increasing in the world today. In Psalms 33, 12, it says this, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. In other words, a nation that acknowledges God is the Lord, meaning he's the boss, will be blessed. Yeah, and Psalm 72, 11 says, And let the kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. The last I checked, all still means all.
And here's an interesting fact to think about when you think about serving. A civil servant was once called a minister of God. And there are some nations that today still reference their politicians as ministers in their titles. This is because government and the structure of government originates with God, and civil government is designed to serve its citizens in God's name. Yeah, and sadly, many of our civil servants aren't bowing before Him, and they certainly aren't governing as ministers of His. No, they're not. What many people don't understand is the Bible addresses several different forms of government— Self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. And civil government should never displace the responsibility God gives to the individual, the family, or the church. When these areas of government are operating properly, individuals, families, churches, and societies flourish. But when the civil government does more than God has established for it to do, we're in trouble. That's right. So... If you, like me, have found yourself wondering, why is this world, and especially our nation here in America, getting crazier by the day, I want to submit a very simple answer. It's because we as individuals, families, churches, and nations have strayed far from the God of the Bible. And when the spiritual is out of alignment, then every other area will be as well. We have to recognize that our country's social issues, racial issues, economic issues, violence issues, they're primarily spiritual. What we're seeing today is a society that has sought to define itself for itself. And, you know, as more and more decisions and allegiances are made based on what people think, how they feel, and we say no to this and that based on things that are no longer based on God's word, we're going to get what we're choosing. You know, we have people choosing their gender apart from what God has created them to be. We have people choosing their family structure apart from the way God intended for it and doing so using really a definition of freedom that they've created for themselves. And anytime, anytime, People place themselves in a position of governance outside of God's rule. That's what the Bible calls rebellion. And that's what we're seeing today is humanity rebelling against God. Welcome to the world of humanism, socialism, and Marxism. And all those other isms. Isms. (laughs) (laughs) You know, think about this. St. Augustine said, Those who are citizens of God's kingdom are best equipped to be citizens of the kingdom of man. In the 20th century, atheist and secular humanistic leaders gained control of nations all across Europe, Asia, and Africa. What was the result? You know, according to historian R.J. Rummel, Almost 170 million men, women, and children have been brutally murdered by these governments all in the name of human progress. Not really any kind of progress I'm interested in. (laughs) Me either. Yeah, we can't ignore the enormous impact that politics has on the society, which is exactly what the Bible teaches us. We as Christian Americans have been blessed, definitely. We've been blessed with a government where we have the privilege of electing our leaders. The leaders we elect or do nothing to remove have great influence on our freedoms and will either lead our nation towards righteousness 
or toward moral disaster. Something else the Bible clearly reveals. Those who apply God's principles to governing do good, they protect our freedoms, and they pave the way for generations of blessing. Which is something, you know, I guess I've become more and more passionate about. We just had our first granddaughter. And I can't help but think of, you know, what it's going to look like for her and all the other kids that, and our great-grandchildren. I want you to think about this. It's been Christians' involvement in government that has given us hospitals, civil liberties, the abolition of slavery, modern science, the elevation of women, regard for human life, a workable system of justice, education for just everyday people, and the free enterprise system. And I mean, that's just to name a few things. You know, when we see the good results there are from our involvement and when God's principles are applied, and obviously the horror that results when those are rejected, doesn't it seem irresponsible to be a Christian who says, I'll just stay out of politics? I really, really believe it's time for those who profess Christ to make a radical return to God's Word as it relates to politics. You know, we just can't sit back. Um, I mean, we can, and we can watch the rebellious trends that are going on in our nation continue, or we can engage in this battle and take advantage of the rights that we have. We have rights. I mean, think about it. We have dual citizenship and we can do something amazing individually to bring healing to our land if we'll be guided by a kingdom perspective in the things we do. So one way that we can engage in that battle is voting. (laughs) So I think it's a good place to, to talk about just that. Yeah. Like Debbie said, one of the things we have been given is dual citizenship, heavenly and earthly, which not only affords us a lot of opportunity, but it means we have a responsibility to steward what we've been given. One of the things we've been given by God is authority. The Bible says all authority belongs to God, but he has put human beings on earth as caretakers. That's you, that's me. Yeah. In doing so, he's delegated his authority to us. So what's our task? According to Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we're to go out into and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey God in every area of life. And guess what? This includes politics. We're to teach people to make godly decisions about government, as well as promote the efforts of those who are applying God's principles in government. What a privilege we have to exercise our dual citizenship and to advance God's rule. Voting is just one means by which we have been granted this power. We get to choose candidates who support what we believe in we, and what we think best reflects God's values. By not voting and participating in the political process, we're just giving up our power, period. Yeah, especially to those who do vote. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> you know, Micah Watson, she wrote, it's a small but tangible exercise, talking about voting, that can lead to even greater involvement in cultivating a just and merciful society. Think about that. When we cultivate a kingdom perspective of politics and vote, it can lead to cultivating a just and merciful society. I love that because it comes back to the whole reason we started these episodes, the principle of sowing and reaping. 
If we elect leaders who align with God's word, then we'll reap a government that does its best to maintain a safe, just, righteous environment. And what does that do? It allows freedom to flourish. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, God said, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You know, if that was true for God's exiles in Babylon, which I kind of feel like we're in modern day, wouldn't it seem even more true for God's people today? You know, think about this. Romans 13.1 tells us that we're called to submit to governing authorities. Who do you want to submit to? Godly leaders or ungodly ones? Those whose policies align with God's words or those that don't? So something else we should think about when we're thinking about putting people in offices, Jesus taught us to pray this. He said, pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the Bible, we're called to be his ambassadors That means we're to carry the culture of the kingdom into every sphere of life so that God, through Jesus Christ, would be known and glorified. Why is that? So people and nations would be blessed and healed and set free from all kinds of oppression, whether those are demonic, religious, cultural, or tyrannical. We are absolutely called to influence our surroundings, y'all. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 reminds us, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salts become tasteless, how could it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know, we're not trying to tell you who to vote for, but we are trying to help you understand the importance you play in advancing God's kingdom and how voting from a kingdom perspective makes a difference. Yeah, we definitely aren't trying to tell you who to vote for, but we wanted to give you some information to help you understand a little better on how you might do it from a kingdom perspective. For starters, I think it's important to understand a few things about our government. I'm going to get historical for a moment, not hysterical. (laughs) Simply historical. I like it. I like yeah, it. Absolutely. So if you if you watch TV and see any of the news, you're gonna you're, you've heard them say this many times, especially when we're, they're talking about politics. It's important to keep a separation between church and state. I know you've heard it. I know you've heard it over and over and over again when they start talking about politics and the church and religion and God as far as politics go and and those evil Christians. But the problem is that we really don't dig into what was really meant by the statement, nor the fact that the First Amendment doesn't even say that. Exactly. Um, So Thomas Jefferson used this phrase in 1802 in a private letter written to the Baptist Association of Danbury in Connecticut. So they had written to him. He was responding to their letter because they feared that the government might someday try to regulate religious expression. And it's very clear, our founders did not want the government imposing a national religion or denomination on the people. 
Why? They wanted people to worship freely. Thus is clearly expressed in our First Amendment. So Thomas Jefferson wisely agreed with them, as, you know, like I said, so many of our founders. His statement in a letter, mind you, was intended to protect religious expression by communicating that there had been built a wall of separation between church and the state, basically saying that the federal government would not be able to establish a national religion, otherwise known as, let me see if I can say it, an ecclesiocracy. Yeah, it's kind of what they had in in England, where there was the Church of England. There was one church. Absolutely. So, um he was, you know, responding to that and saying, no, 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 you know, but in no way, shape or form was this about, you know, people not being able to openly and unapologetically in the government acknowledge the sovereign hand of God. You know, the separation of church and state was not the same thing as God and government being disconnected. No, that's right. What we need to understand is we, the United States, started as a nation because we left England, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We left a country that had one church, one religion, and the king was the head of the Church of England. Many of the original settlers were there were those fleeing religious persecution. They wanted to worship God and not the way the king decreed, but the way the Bible commanded. Our founding fathers were almost all men that declared their faith and the importance of prayer and the Bible and all the decisions that were made about the founding of our country and our government. Many of those were proclaimed in their writings and their letters all over the place that they were devout followers of Christ. In regards to our founding fathers, about five weeks into the Constitutional Convention of 1787, they were all together trying to draft the Constitution. They were uh, in a big old struggle. <laughs> they were on the struggle bus. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were uh, actually beginning to break up, and the delegates were starting starting to return home and giving up. Brent, but Benjamin Franklin, the guy who wanted the turkey to be <laughs> <laughs> the, the representation of America. I don't know. Thanksgiving's yeah. coming. Cobble, cobble. Uh, That's but, a good trivia. Yeah, there you go. Ben Franklin, he challenged them and called them to pray. That's right. And listen to what he told them. <clears throat> in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hereto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. And now, have we forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? 
We've been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Wow. Not just wow, but he meant every morning before any governmental business was done that we pray. Yes. To the God of the Bible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think they are talking about that on... uh, CNN. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say that. She did. Uh, I I may cut that. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So they, they prayed. And after five weeks of failure following, they took the recess to pray, and then they reconvened. And in 10 weeks, they produced a document that has become the longest ongoing constitution in the history of the world. And, you know, for many of us Americans, you know, we've lived here our whole life. This may not seem very consequential or impressive unless you realize that throughout history, the average length of a nation's constitutional lifespan is only like 17 years. So there's something very, very special about our 230-plus-year-old constitution. It has outlasted every other national written constitution in history. (laughs) You might ask yourself, why? Well, maybe this will be a good clue for you. And listen to what President John Adams said. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. President Zachary Taylor said this, It was for the love of the truths of this great book, the Bible, that our fathers abandoned their native shores for the wilderness. The same truth sustained them in their resolutions to become a free nation, and guided by the wisdom of this book, they founded a government. i got a couple things for you to think about. Why has the United States of America become the most free, the most powerful nation in the history of the world? Why has America, being only 4% of the world's population, been able to produce more inventions, medical cures, and technological discoveries than the 96% of the world combined each year? We truly believe it's because of the incredible biblical foundation on which our government was founded. Unfortunately, most people don't even understand this. And, you know, look, those who founded our nation may not have lived up to or by God's standards in all things, as is obvious, you know, when it comes to slavery, but there was an awareness of a higher standard and it was established. And in time, we abolished slavery while Look at many other nations. They continued in that practice, and some continue in it even today. And another thing I think it's important to understand is the Founding Fathers had a choice between establishing a democracy or a republic. What does our Pledge of Allegiance say? I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic. (laughs) There's a distinct difference between a republic and a democracy. 
A pure democracy operates by direct majority vote of the people. When an issue is to be decided, the entire population votes on it, and the majority wins and rules. But a republic differs in that a general population elects representatives who then pass laws pass laws to govern the nation. A democracy is the rule by a majority feeling, what the founders described as mobocracy, and a republic is ruled by law. But what laws primarily? First, by the principles of biblical law, because they knew those do not change. Here's a, here's a good example. Murder is always a crime in the Bible. It's always a crime according to the Word of God. However, in a true democracy, if the majority of people decided that murder is no longer a crime, murder is no longer a crime. I mean, think about the stability that that like, gives a country if it founds their laws on something that's unchangeable. Unchangeable Word of God. So firmly were these principles ensconced in the American Republic that early law books taught that the government was free to set its own policy as long as it's an area that God had not already ruled. <laughs> I mean, say that again. Yeah, the, they said that they could decide on things that God had not already decided on. Really, that's, that's the gist of it. They said, if God's already ruled on it, we got to follow that. So amazing. Yeah, yeah, they, you don't hear that a lot. No. no and it, for example, Blackstone's commentaries explained, in the case of murder, this is expressly forbidden by the divine. If any human law should allow or enjoin us to commit it, we're bound to transgress that human law. Basically, uh, not go along with not it. Not go along with it. But with regard to matters that are not commanded or forbidden by those superior laws, such for instance, as exporting of wool into foreign countries. I think what he's doing is he's saying those things that just really don't matter a monstrous amount in uh, <laughs> the big scope of life. They matter in, obviously, in commerce and those type of things. But when we're talking about things that need to be law, murder, stealing, all those things that are in the Bible, those can't be changed by man. But if we're just talking about exporting wool or some of those trade things, he says legislature has scope and opportunity to interpose. You know, um, other founders echoed this very same theme. Um, I'm going to give you three quotes by different founders. Um, There are plenty, plenty more if you like do your homework, study it. But James Wilson, signer of the Constitution, he was also a U.S. Supreme Court justice, said, all laws however, may be arranged in two different classes, divine and human. But it should always be remembered that this law, natural or revealed, made for men or for nations, flows from the same divine source. It is the law of God. Human law must rest its authority ultimately upon the authority of the law, which is divine. And then Alexander Hamilton, another signer of the Constitution, said, The law dictated by God himself is, of course, superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. I'm going to take that third one. John Adams warned, Without such divine laws, every man will do what is right in his own eyes 
Have you heard that somewhere else before? <laughs> I, I believe that he referred to the Bible in that one. <clears throat> Every man will do what is right in his own eyes, and no man's life or property or reputation or liberty will be secure. And every one of these will soon mold itself into a system of subordination of all the moral virtues and intellectual abilities. All the powers of wealth, beauty, wit, and science will yield to the wanton pleasures, the capricious will, and the abominable cruelty of one or a very few. So let's be clear about it. America's government is a republic, not a democracy. And to date, it's the highest form of government devised by man. But that also means it requires the greatest amount of human care and maintenance. So if we neglect it, it can deteriorate into a variety of lesser forms of government, including a democracy or even anarchy, which is a system in which each person determines his own rules and standards, an oligarchy, which is a government run by a small council or a group of elite individuals, or a dictatorship which is a government run by a single individual. You know, the founders unquestionably used biblical precepts and principles to form the basis of our republic. And they also believed that our republic would be destroyed if the people of the republic lost their knowledge of biblical ideals. It reminds me of what That scripture says, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. You know, Fisher Ames, author of The House Language of the First Amendment, said, the known propensity of a democracy is to licentiousness, which is excessive license, which the ambitious call and the ignorant believe to be liberty. Let's let that sink in for a moment. Because I think this is where we are today. Most people think we're a democracy, And we are quickly spiraling into anything goes. You know, um, what happens when we begin to lean on our own understanding and don't have standards, we make all sorts of really bad decisions. You know, people lean on their own understanding. They try to impose and enforce things that are unbiblical. And then we turn around and we wonder why our country is a mess. When we use earthly wisdom over God's truth, it only leads to racial, cultural, class, and political chaos. You know, Isaiah 65 verses 1 through 2 tells us we need a divine standard, a standard that exists outside of ourselves to which we look and align. And James Madison said, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found in incompatible with personal security or the rights of property and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. John Adams said this, remember democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. The experience of all former ages has shown that of all human governments, democracy was the most unstable, fluctuating and short lived. So with all that in mind, we need to start talking about specific issues surrounding the current election. I got to talk about things like economics, or as my teacher said, economics could be economics or economics. Life is about choices. Economics, immigration, abortion, gender rights. There are, uh, there are a bunch of other issues, but these are the significant ones. They seem to be the ones that everybody's talking about in the news and in the conversations around the water cooler. <laughs> yeah. 
in in and in most recent polls, inflation is top of the list. It's the most important issue that people are talking about. Uh, we can debate policy, we can debate taxes, trickle down economics, and so on all day long. But as Christians, first question we must ask on any of these subjects or policies is what does God say about it? What does the Bible reveal? Definitely. And when you and I go to Scripture first and we keep it main, what we're doing is we're respecting God's rightful place as Lord, right? Which it says when the nation does that, what? They're going to be blessed. So when we act on God's revealed will, we're doing our part to advance His rule, advance His kingdom on earth. So I know we're not going to be able to dive super deep into these things, but Let's just give it a go, see if we can cover as much as, you know, let's just see how much we can cover. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about the economy first because we know it's an important issue. Let's start with what Psalms 24, 1 says. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. We need to understand that the foundation of good economics is actually theological. Communism teaches that the government owns everything. Capitalism teaches that individuals own everything. Christianity teaches that God owns everything and has freely given it into the hands of human beings to manage and steward on his behalf. Remember this, God gave us the responsibility to cultivate and keep. You'll need to do your research on all of this, but you're going to find out that God wants individuals and governments to operate wisely and use godly discernment to make decisions about how to properly use a nation's resources and its assets. For sure. And... When godly principles are properly implemented, responsibility, creativity, and productivity, you know, flourish. The Bible is very clear. It talks about debt, fair and unjust taxation, extortion, corruption, poverty, laziness, and all sorts of other things. But let me drill it down. When it comes to agenda and policies that aren't in line with kingdom economic principles, here are the signs. Unfair taxation, inefficiency, as well as limitations on a free market economy. You'll find that in the Bible, which, by the way, a free market economy is the type of system strongly supported in the Word. And let me just say this, a biblical worldview will give you a proper understanding of the concept of equity, which is a word that gets thrown around a whole lot these days. But I'm going to give you, this is, this is like, put your big panties on. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, there's no such thing as a quality of outcomes. Yes, we are all born equal. We have all, all of us have equal value. But, we are also born with different levels of talent, different degrees of motivation, and into different situations that offer different amounts of opportunities. The one thing we do have in common is that regardless of what I just said, be it talent, opportunity, situation, motivation, we, under God, can maximize whatever God has given us. And what he said is that when you're faithful with a little, he'll actually give you more. So from a kingdom perspective, some of the things we can take into consideration when selecting who you'd vote for would be, does the candidate support excessive spending? 
Do they support implementing programs that overstep the role of civil government? Or maybe they want to enforce policies that restrict the use of natural resources of our country. Something else to consider is immigration and the laws pertaining to it, because this too will affect our country and especially our economy. Throughout the Bible, God shows concern for the immigrant. However, Scripture combines this obligation to care for the alien with a corollary responsibility of the immigrant to obey and respect the laws of the land. The immigrant is more than welcome, but they've got to obey the laws of the land. Since governments would operate under biblical standards that provide for the safety, security, and well-being of its citizens for good, and that's uh, referenced in Romans 13, 1-7, and 1 Peter 2, 13-14, our immigration policies need to be legal and beneficial to the country and its citizens. This can only be done through a controlled immigration process that assures immigrants are advancing the well-being and progress of the nation and not detrimental to it. And when immigration is conducted in that manner, all people will benefit. When it's not, an illegal immigration is allowed to flourish. There are going to be consequences. Yeah, the reality is the first act a person commits on the path to becoming an American shouldn't be to violate our nation's laws. Laws are in place to protect us, and they should be honored. Yeah, and one law is boundaries. And boundaries are not Bound, only... Laws, I mean, ba- that's a what law laws is a boundary. Are. It's a boundary, <laughs> absolutely. So ba- boundaries aren't only a good personal principle, but strong boundaries help everyone know who we are, where we begin, and where we end. Irma Bombeck, who used to be a, a satire writer, once said that good fences make good neighbors, and I agree. And the Bible... <laughs> And the Bible's full of descriptions about boundaries. Even the boundaries of heaven are described in detail in Revelations 21, 15 through 21. And I'm going to leave it at that, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a fact. Our immigration system is broken. But we can't ignore the fact that millions of people are coming to our country illegally. And we're not set up for this. It impacts our health care, our schools, taxes that we're trying to collect. I'd encourage you to look up some of the costs of this to our country. It, it it costs a lot when we when people come here illegally. Obviously, we need to recognize that those that are coming here first, we need to recognize them as God's children, and we need to respond in love. There's a reason why these people are willing to risk their lives to come to our country. Some of those are fleeing religious persecution and other types of persecution. They're fleeing from oppression, poverty, and some are just trying to move to a country that they think will give them a better chance to take care of their families, a better chance to achieve financial success. Of course, there are those that are coming here to intend to do us harm, but I think we can all agree that that's not the majority. That's the minority. Uh, But from a kingdom perspective, these are some of the things to take into consideration when selecting who you vote for. I think it's important that we talk about it and realize that just what this impact can be on our society we're just not set up for it. There's a, a system in place that allows for immigration. There's a system in place that will allow those people to assimilate into who we are. They will allow them to assimilate into the school system. They will allow them to assist, assimilate into all of the all of the things that our country offers. But when people come in illegally and we can't count those people and keep up with them and allow them to come in through a process— 
things get overwhelmed. The schools get overwhelmed. There's just not enough teachers. There's not enough school rooms. There's not enough teachers that are bilingual. It's just, we're just not ready for it. We're just, it's overwhelms the system. And all it does is bring down the level of education for all, not just the immigrants, but those that are, that are citizens. It's, there's a reason that there's a process for legal citizenship. It's not just so we can limit who comes in. It's so that everybody will succeed and everybody has that opportunity I think that's good for that, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and Debbie, I think you got the next real hot topic button to push. I do. All right. Here we go. We're going to talk about abortion. And I know this is really controversial. I know that, um, like, I've just had so many conversations. But again, it's like what Bill said. Anytime we talk about an issue, we first have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about it? And I really don't think you can read the Bible and draw any other conclusion. God is the author and creator of life. I believe his word is very clear on this issue. Listen, Psalms 139 verses 13 through 16 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. In my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. <clears throat> Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And Jeremiah 1, 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And I want to start out by saying that I'm a little touchy on this one for some good reasons, I believe. My wife was adopted. My mom was adopted. My uncle was adopted. My grandfather was adopted, and even my daughter-in-law's dad was adopted. So I think we're a little bit like the family of Christ. We believe in adoption, <laughs> and I'm so thankful that their biological mothers chose life. I am so thankful as well. You know, I may have been unplanned by man, but I was fully known and knit together by God, and He had a purpose for me, and the fact that as I came to Christ and I realized, you know, that I wasn't an accident, that I am divinely um, made, created, that God saw me in my mother's womb. And, and made you for me. me. That's right. And set me apart. I mean, it's it's amazing. Absolutely. And as we said, we, we, we've got to start these discussions with God. And when God created humanity in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, he said, He made us in the image and likeness of Himself. Think about that. We are made in the image of God. A human being is a spectacular masterpiece, and every human has a divine design. Every human being is sacred. This is probably not popular. Every person matters. Every individual is significant. Every life counts according to the Word of God. You know, if you and I are going to really understand 
politics and these issues from a kingdom perspective, we have to understand the kind of value God places on life. And, you know, we don't, we can't forget government has a job and its job is to protect life. I mean, I want you to think about this. Luke verses 12, verse 7 says the, that the very hairs on our head are all numbered. And you, you can't read the Bible and walk away without understanding that whenever a life is taken, it's actually an attack on God himself. I mean, read Exodus verses 21 through 23 through 24 in terms of like God's perspective on a mom and an unborn child. Listen to this. It says, if two men are fighting and accidentally hit a pregnant woman and cause the harm of the woman or her baby, the penalty shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You know, what is what 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 can we conclude in terms of God's perspective on the child in a mother's womb? He he puts into place a law that causes a person who causes a miscarriage to to be punished. It says life for life. He separates, he distinguishes between the two. And if he does that, we have to as well. In Psalms 22, 9 through 10, it says, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. And in Isaiah 49, 5, it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. You know, the Bible clearly reveals a God who knows us in the womb, who's shaping and forming us in the womb. And from a biblical perspective, life is happening in the womb at conception. And the reality is, from a biblical perspective, a person's life actually starts preconception. God has a purpose. He has a plan. He has it all laid out before you ever live, even live a single day. Absolutely. And abortion ends that God designed and created human life, a life that is a gift from God and one that our government is ordained to protect. When God places a baby in the womb, He, God, has a plan for their life. Whenever someone cuts that life short, they have interfered with the program and purposes of Almighty God. Here we go. Since the infamous Roe versus Wade case in 1973 when the Supreme Court invented, and I said invented, a constitutional right to abortion, they invented it, more than 60 million lives have been lost to the procedure. I say procedure, it's just murder. Guys, we have to remember that we're in a war. We have a real enemy whose main goal is to abort the advancement of life. Why? Because life represents God, because we are created in the image of God. And the Bible says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He does it in whatever way he can, most oftentimes through what we believe, through deception, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the latest available figures from 2020 
indicate that there were just over 930,000 abortions nationwide. That's just the United States. And that was up from the previous year. Let that sink in. It's almost 1 million babies, almost 1 million children in one year were killed before they had a chance to fulfill God's purpose on their lives. Abortion legalization should be a major issue on the heart of Christians. God has spoken so clearly on this issue. I mean, obviously, nobody wants the government telling them what to do with their property. I mean, their bodies, you know, whatever. Um, We don't want anybody telling us what to do. (laughs) It's the whole rebellion thing. But the reality is there are a lot of laws in place that do just that. You know, this philosophy, my body, my choice is genuinely straight from the pit of hell. We've got to think about this logically. There are laws against lewd activities, loitering, drug use, even spitting on the sidewalk. So the rationalization that this is about personal rights is just intellectually inconsistent. You can't even drink in this country until you are 21, but somehow, somehow we've made it okay for a teenager to abort a child. You know, I really like what Tony Evans says about this. He says, abortion has nothing to do with a woman's right to her own body. It has everything to do with the selfishness of our world, which has reduced and dumbed down the dignity of life in order to justify the taking of it. At will. So let's be clear. We need to align our perspective as well as our votes around those who will protect the lives of the unborn. There might be a medical condition that would put us in a situation where we'd have to choose the mother of the child. And I thank God Debbie and I never had to make that decision. But in every other case, adoption should be the preferred option for those who choose not to keep the child to raise. I know there are a lot of people out there who wrestle with a woman who is the victim of rape or incest, but the reality is that's less than 1% of all the abortion decisions, less than 1%. The majority of women who choose to abort their babies state that the reason, this is the ladies that have had the abortion, state that the reason for doing it is because it would dramatically change their life or cause them financial strain. This is scary, but in other words, what they're saying is they're using it as birth control. Bottom line, abortion is not a personal choice, and it certainly shouldn't be deemed an economic issue. It's a spiritual and moral issue, and it grieves the heart of God. Wow. And I think this is a good launching place to talk about the breakdown of the family and gender ideology, because I believe the family is a central component of the Christian faith. In Matthew 19, 5 through 6, it says, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I heard that somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I just want you to think about that. What God has joined together. Let no man separate. You know, family is what God was creating when he put humanity on the earth, when he created Adam and Eve. I believe the family is under attack like never before because 
honestly, it's the first institution established by God, and that's going to be attacked. Think about this, though. God had a plan from the very beginning, and He saw mankind just multiplying, spreading throughout the earth, and civilizations, obviously, societies evolving. So what was the foundation for that? It was the family. And I love, I love, I love, I love how Tony Evans kind of puts it. He says, like pouring a foundation for a building determines the stability of what you build on it. When God established the family, He poured that foundation upon which civilization and society would stand. And when the foundation cracks, the society that rests upon it is in grave danger. And from a kingdom perspective, marriage is more than just a social institution. It's a sacrament of faith. It's a reflection of God's perfect plan for humanity. It's the living embodiment of Jesus' love for the church and the church's devotion to Him. You know, the distortion of gender roles is, it's an attack on the family, and it's an attack actually on the image of God. Uh, God created us to having two sexes. We're male and female. That's not changed. And again, He created us for a purpose, to form a family so that we would be fruitful and multiply. But the purpose of that was to expand His likeness throughout the earth. The family is to mirror God and to exercise God's rule on earth. And we've got to understand that the goal of the devil is to destroy the family, and he'll do it any way he possibly can. And right now his current approach is by confusing people about their genders, and uh, social media is helping him do it. It's all over the place. Teens are being bombarded with the idea that they're not good enough, that they just don't Measure matter. up. They yeah. don't measure up, that they're inadequate, all of those things. that they It gives them this feeling of inadequacy. And when it, that's put out there on social media, it says the answer may be that you're homosexual. Maybe you're bisexual. Maybe you're transgender. Maybe you're transsexual, trisexual, whatever sexual, or any of those other identities that are now out there. And here's the thing. Again, we're talking about People, individuals, families, whatever, the further you move away from God, then you're not going to know your identity. That is one of the things that God, you know, is saying, I knew you in in your mother's womb. I formed you. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. This is how the world is to work. This is who I am. All of that builds identity. And the devil wants to distort that identity and make you confused about who you are and the fact that you do have a purpose. Absolutely. So, you know, again, Romans 1, 24 through 28, we've got to remember that God said he will turn a nation or individuals over to their own evil propensities. And he reminds us that those, you know, propensities have built-in consequences. Proverbs 14, 34 tells us, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Righteousness builds the city, Proverbs eleven eleven. Wickedness tears it down. So what is Righteousness. Righteousness is the standard of right and wrong. It's the standard 
that has been established by God, not us. It's right because God says it's right, or it's wrong because He says it's wrong. Things are not right because you think they're right, or because the culture says they're right, or the media says they're right, or our educational institutions, or Hollywood says they're right. Those are mere human opinions. People living their truth. Absolutely. And guys, bottom line, when laws are passed that justify unrighteous activity, that legalize evil, you know, things such as abortion that go against God's design, same-sex marriage. I mean, there's there's so many issues that are criminal, you know, criminal injustices, all that kind of stuff. What we are actually doing as a nation is we are asking for chaos. And in effect, we're all those propensities that have built-in consequences, we are inviting God's judgment. And what we see around us today is people wanting to be free from their created purpose instead of free to fulfill their created purpose. I think that's important to understand that you've got a purpose. They want to be, but people want to be free outside of God's limited restrictions, which ultimately leads to anarchy, chaos, and confusion in society and the world. As Christians, while we're called to love everyone, we're not called to agree with people's preferences if they clearly go against God's will and principles. Much less are we to advocate or support legal uh, legislation or politicians who want to ensure those preferences override God's order and plan for humanity. You know, there's a big difference between loving and advocating. I mean, tolerance, what was... You know, obviously my age, I was born in 1970. That was the big thing. You know, tolerance of the LGBT community and you know, whatever letter they've added this week um, of, you know, these lifestyles somehow over the years has now evolved into full on acceptance and affirmation, mind you, of all of these lifestyle choices. And this has further led to more government led education programs for our children, which with teachings that undermine our Creator. The government has no business acting as parents, no business giving access and information to our children that we do not want our children to see. Those children are vulnerable. These policies and systems seek to indoctrinate our kids with unbiblical ideologies, and we have to resist them. We have to. Yeah, think about this. The historians were right about Rome and the great empires of the past. The last virtue, mind you, that those morally bankrupt cultures held on to before their demise was tolerance. Anything goes, that is, except for objective moral standards. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing today, which ironically, liberalism. Radical liberalism. Yeah. It's intolerant of any point of view except their own. Our universities. The news and entertainment industries have gone from belief in freedom of expression to the outright suppression of anything Christian or wholesome. So when it comes to politics and voting, a kingdom perspective is going to lead you to support public policies that strengthen the family. They strengthen traditional marriage because You understand family as God intended it. And that family is the building block to having a moral, healthy, and thriving society. And we've said this more than once. We're in a war. We're absolutely in a war. 
And a very common wartime strategy is known as the fifth column. It's when a country deploys uh, this fifth column approach to war. They seek to infiltrate the culture in order to impact the culture in the way they want. So they send in spies, send in spies that assimilate. They become doctors. They become educators, politicians, business people, judges, just basically all walks of life. And in this way, they can destroy the opposing country from within. It turns, a, it turns into a strategy of sabotage. Sometimes. I want you to, you know, I have to interrupt because I don't Go know ahead. if you've seen all those videos where all of these people, they catch them on video, but it's teachers, it's people who are in government positions on school oh, yeah. boards oh, yeah, and it. all of that. And they end up being caught talking. I mean, they have an agenda. Oh, yeah. They'll unquestionably. Say uh, I'm going to use my position to spread this, whatever, this this, this mess. Hot mess. <laughs> this, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. So sometimes this sabotage takes place prior to a large invasion when we were talking about war. Well, uh, the invasion has begun. But other times it's enough on its own to deflate a nation or its resources in order for it to become vulnerable enough for a quick and easy defeat. Um, I think the attack has been on for quite some time. And if we don't get our act together. We're teetering, especially on the defeat of our republic. Absolutely. And becoming a democracy saying this, that, and the other. And, uh, yeah. And I think, uh, it all started with one pivotal point in time. You know, in 1962, the Supreme court ruled prayer in school unconstitutional. It was absolutely a landmark decision. Unfortunately, it was one that was made without precedent. The, the judges basically, you know, ruled by preference. They ignored the law. They really did. And it's something to think about because those judges were chosen by who? The president. And who chose the president? The people. Yeah. And who put those politicians that uh, said, you know gave the stamp off because they have to go through that process and be approved? It's elected officials, right? Absolutely. Who elected them? We did. Yes, we did. And what's crazy is 97% of Americans at that time were professed Christians. Only 3% were not. So what I want you to get is that this moment, this moment in our country set in motion another precedent where the 3% somehow now made the standard by which the rest of the nation had to conduct, you know, it's public affairs. And it's the same way today. That seems like the minority, the few, are the ones that are setting the policy for the rest of us. Absolutely. So what happened as a result of that? If you guys actually did the research and you looked at some of these videos and uh, studied and all of that kind of stuff, what you would find is that like if you looked at a graph, you've got 19... 62, the following year from that point forward, these statistics that I'm about to share with you just skyrocketed. What kind of things am I talking about? Unwed pregnancies, teen pregnancy shot up 400%. And guess what? To date, America now has the highest teen pregnancy rate of any nation in the industrialized world. What about sexually transmitted diseases? Guess what? Went up 228%. You know what else happened? The divorce rate skyrocketed. Went up 177%. Another thing, single parent households tripled. Um, 
And now, where are we today? The U.S. has the highest divorce rate in the world. Unmarried couples living together increased tenfold, soaring over a thousand percent. And what about violent crime? After we removed prayer out of school, where kids got to pray. Guess what? It, you know, all of these things that I'm giving you, all of these numbers, all of these things remain stable for decades. But after this decision, all these things skyrocketed. And violence, 470%, 470%, it went up. And now America is the leader in crimes committed in the world. These aren't things we want to be number one in. No, they absolutely aren't. But it was made in our judicial system, and it was made by people we put in to power. Our elected leaders right now have passed legislation that has redefined marriage. Now they're trying to redefine what a man is and what a woman is. And look, maybe some of these people probably could have been the most well-meaning people. But at the end of the day, they were devoid of godly wisdom. They leaned on their own understanding. And whenever that happens, we cause devastating consequences. It is time to wake up and take action in our nation before it's too late. And so we're on a path to the breakdown of our society. Look, you can read the history books. History makes it clear, and so does the Bible. And Hosea 4, 6 says this, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We've got to get into it. We've got to do the research. Yeah, we need to understand. So anyway, I know that's a lot. And it's heavy. And it's heavy. But I hope by listening today, you've gained a little more perspective. And I hope that you're beginning to get, if you didn't beforehand, an understanding of just how important your perspective is, as well as your vote. And I think the main takeaway is this. God loves us, and He wants the absolute best for us. He's given us the freedom to choose who we want to rule over us, and it's in our best interest to make sure we take it seriously. I'm telling you, the devil takes it very seriously, and he wants you to choose poorly. He wants you to choose what will cause more pain and destruction. So if we really want to see our nation healed and helped, we need to pray for our nation and then be a kingdom representative and use what we know and the opportunities we have to do our best to preserve God's principles in our government so we'll be free and we will have a republic. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, so I'm just going to give you a couple bullet points. First, what do you do? Prayerfully evaluate whether or not your beliefs or your allegiances are to something or someone that actually contradicts God's word. Second, be willing to change. Third, please hear me. While the reality is that no political party is going to fully represent the kingdom of God, we Christian Americans are so blessed to live in this great nation. And we have a kingdom privilege and responsibility to do our homework, get engaged in politics, choose candidates who best align with the values of God's kingdom, vote for those who best represent the principles and the precepts that God has already revealed in His Word. 
you know, think about this, you know, just be sure when you're voting that you're voting for principles, not for a particular party. Judge what a candidate does legislatively more than what they say. I mean, we got people, they say all sorts of stuff, but it's like the old adage goes, it's let... Actions speak louder than words. Absolutely. That's it. Actions speak louder than words. And again, we can't say it enough. Do your homework. Study to show yourself approved. (laughs) Rightly divide the word of God. Take the time to understand what the Bible says and take the time to know what these candidates stand for. Because, you know, we got a lot riding on not only this midterm election, but the future of our country. Absolutely. And remember this, as long as the enemy can keep us illegitimately divided, whether by making us more Democrat than Christian or more Republican than Christian, then we're aiding and abetting the deterioration and destruction of a culture. And let us remember this, government is a sacred enterprise because it was initiated by God. So good. I think that's probably it, guys. We're going to um, post some resources for you on our social media. If you haven't followed us, find us. We're on Facebook and Instagram at First and Main Life. You know, as always, thank you so much for listening. We hope this has helped you. And we can't wait to meet with you here again at First and Main, your avenue to living well.